Well, good morning, everyone. How are we? Happy March Madness weekend. Yeah. How are the brackets looking? Uh, and all God's people who picked Purdue said, oh, right? Thoughts and prayers to my friend Mike Klein. Loves Purdue, but oof, that was rough. Uh, did anyone pick that school that no one knows the name of, FDU? Anyone pick them? No, of course not. Of course you didn't. Um, my favorite time of the year, spring. Spring starts tomorrow. It's beautiful outside. So glad to be with all of you. My name's Ryan. Uh, for those who are new or visiting, I'm the pastor here at Arbor. It is so good to see all of you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out. We are continuing on in our series through James' letter, and we're going to be picking it up in James chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 today. James 4, 1 through 10. But before we jump into James' letter, I'm going to spend some time in the Gospel of John. You don't have to turn there, but it's just going to kind of set the table and provide some context for us as we eventually jump into our passage in James today. And so, uh, John's Gospel starts off with this like poetic, theologically dense introduction that actually echoes the Genesis creation account. And he starts the, the Gospel by writing this. He writes, in the beginning was the word, or, or the logos. That's the Greek word that John uses there. And the important thing about this word logos is that this was a, tr a tremendously important philosophical word that was used by Stoics and Platonists to kind of express this idea of ultimate reality. What according to their understanding was, was this force that gave meaning and purpose and life to the universe. And so John opens up his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word, this logos, was with God and the word, the logos, was fully God. And so, so great thinkers during that time said this logos was this inanimate force that was giving life and purpose and meaning. And John here at the beginning of his gospel, he's saying Jesus is that. Jesus is this logos. Okay, put, put, a, put a pin in that. We'll come back to that later in today's teaching because John then jumps off of this sort of poetic kind of philosophical thing and then he jumps into some action and, and the first person we meet is this other John named John the Baptist and in this scene that John jumps in on in this first chapter, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming toward him and John the Baptist, he declares this. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so here at the beginning of the Gospel of John, not only is Jesus declared to be the Word, the Logos, but here Jesus is also declared to be the Lamb of God. Now this is also a tremendously important title here. It's a theologically important title, not according to Greek philosophy, but Jewish theology. And according to Jewish thought at the time, this concept, this idea, this, this representative lamb of God was tremendously important for forgiveness and reconciliation and this ultimate messianic salvation that the people of God were waiting for, they were anticipating. And so right off the bat, in the Gospel of John, not even all the way through chapter one here, two different Johns ascribe two tremendously important titles to Jesus. Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And we haven't even heard from Jesus yet. And so like if these two random Johns are saying such impressive, impressive amazing things about Jesus, then man, what is Jesus gonna say? 
What are Jesus' first words gonna be? And so we see that in verse 35. Look at verse 35 here. John writes, he says, again, the next day John the Baptist was standing there with two of his disciples, gazing at Jesus as he walked by. And he said, this is the second time he said this, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And so when John's two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. In verse 38, Jesus turned around and saw them following and said to them, all right, here it comes, the very first words of Jesus. Are you ready for this? Are you, the anticipation, I can feel it. It is palpable right now. Here are Jesus' first words in the Gospel of John. He says this, what do you want? <laughs> what do you want? Out of all the things, out of all the things, John could have chosen John, the most beloved disciple, the one who is now inspired by the Holy Spirit. He can choose from a variety of things. He has Jesus saying this, what do you want? I mean, you read it the wrong way, it kind of sounds like Jesus is a little grumpy right now, right? Like he's on his way to get his coffee. He's like, don't bother me, what do you want? Sounds like me at the end of a long work day when Brian pops his head in my office. I'm like, what do you want? What do you want right now? I'm just kidding, I love Brian. Um, but is that how Jesus is saying it? Is that how Jesus is saying it? I, 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 don't, I don't think so. In fact, I would say that this first question that Jesus asks here in the Gospel of John is just as profound as the other things that John said at the beginning, that Jesus is the word, the logos, that Jesus is the lamb of God. Because, because by asking this question right here, Jesus is asking the most fundamental question he can ask, not just of a follower of Jesus, but of any human being alive. Note this, that Jesus doesn't ask, what do you believe? He doesn't ask, what do you believe? He doesn't ask, what do you know? He asks, what do you want? James Smith, he's a philosopher and theologian. In his book, You Are What You Love, commenting on this very question, he writes this. This is the most incisive, piercing question Jesus can ask of us, precisely because, now listen, we are what we want. Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behaviors flow. And so listen, you are not what you think. You are not what you believe. You are not what you do. You are what you want. You are what you want. So, what do you want? What do you want? This is the background now that will shape our understanding of these first 10 verses uh, that we'll be looking at in James today. So let's go ahead and turn our attention there right now. James writes, uh, chapter four, verse one. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Now let's stop right there for a second. James jumps into his next big idea in his letter by asking another rhetorical question, and we've seen this time and time again, that James asks these rhetorical questions, and one of the reasons why James asks this question at this point is to get us to answer this question before he provides what, what, what his answer would be to this question. So I wonder, this moment, this morning, how would we answer this question right here today? What causes fights and quarrels among you? 
What causes the fights and the conflicts and the tension in your life? You think about the cutting remarks that you make between you and your spouse. You think about the tension that exists between you and that coworker. You think about that cold grudge that you hold on to between that old friend or that family member. What causes that? And I think some of us might say, well, they're just, they're a deeply selfish person and they're inconsiderate or they're loud or they're messy and the list can go on and on and on. And and essentially what we would be saying is it's something someone else is doing. Or we might say, listen, money is tight in our house right now and that's a constant source of friction and, 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 and we're worried about that and so there's fights around that. Or, or work is just so overwhelming and we can't bear the burden and it's tense in the workplace so naturally we snap at one another and so we would say, what causes fights among us? Well, it's, it's something outside of us. It's, it's a circumstance that we can't control. Is that what James would say though? Now look at the second half of verse one. Let's keep reading. He says, don't they come from your desires? Other translations translate that word passions that battle within you. You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And so our conflicts, the relational tension that exists in our lives does not come from something someone else does. It doesn't come from something outside of us, some circumstance that we can't control. It comes from right here. Everyone point at themselves right now. It comes from inside of us. The passions that wage war inside of us. The desires that battle inside of you. And listen, It doesn't come from from merely our desires. It doesn't come from simply wanting something. More specifically, it comes from this. It comes from not getting what we want. Unmet expectations. You spend enough time with a small child, you will see a natural, unfiltered response to not getting what you want, right? Parents are deeply acquainted with this, and you don't even have to have kids to know that this is a reality. You just have to go to the grocery store enough, right? The parent, like, you know, like, foolishly turns into the aisle with the candy, and and the kid sees the candy. Kid wants candy. Parent says no. What does the kid do? Loses his or her mind. Not all the time. This isn't how kids always respond, but they scream and they shout and they fall to the ground. Why? Because they didn't get what they wanted. And, and most of us, I say most of us, have matured beyond that phase. But isn't this how we respond? We don't always respond well when we don't get what we want. We, we wanted that promotion. We wanted that raise. We wanted that job. We wanted that quiet day off to relax. We wanted our spouse to pay attention to us at the end of the day rather than be on their phone or checking email. We, 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 wanted, we wanted that idyllic, perfect family vacation. And what happens when we don't get what we want? We grow frustrated. We grow angry. And that anger spills out onto other people and then cue conflicts and fighting and bickering and quarrels all because we didn't get what we wanted. Now here's the really interesting thing about this passage in James right here. What's so interesting is that the conflicts, 
the quarrels, the fighting that he's writing about here at the very beginning, this is a secondary issue. This passage is not about how to have healthy relationships without conflict. It's a secondary issue. It's, it's, it's a reaction to a deeper issue. He begins with this rhetorical question about conflicts, about fighting, but quickly we begin to see that the heart of the matter, that the root issue, the real problem is not the fights, but it's what causes the fights. It's what's going on inside of here. And again, it's not that we want things. It's natural to want things. God created us as wanting beings, as beings with desire that are shaped by those desires. The problem here is that either we want the wrong things or we want the right things but for the wrong reasons. Let's keep reading. Look at the second half of verse two. You do not have because you do not ask God. But when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So again, the problem here isn't that that we want things. it's, It's either that we're not getting the things that we want or that we are wanting the right things for the wrong reasons. And James says that whatever it is that you're wanting, you're either not getting it because you're not humbling yourself before God and asking him, or you are asking him, but the thing that you really want, you're asking to spend it on your own selfish desires and not to edify and build others up for the glory of God and for his kingdom. James uses this word passions here, which we've already seen in verse one, but in this translation, they translate the word as desires, but those are actually the same Greek word, desires and passion, and it's this Greek word, hedone, which we get our English words, hedonism and hedonistic from. Hedonism is a way of life that believes that my pleasure, the satisfaction of my desires, is the highest good. Is, is, is the aim, the motivating purpose. It is the center of my life, the satisfaction of my desires. And so what we see here at the very beginning of this passage is James is writing to a community of believers much like ourselves, and he's saying, you have made the ultimate motivating center and purpose of your life, the satisfaction of your own desires, and it is destroying you, not just personally, but your community your relationships. And even though we are like nearly 2,000 years removed from this ancient letter, I think if we were honest with ourselves today, we would find that we're not that different than these folks receiving this letter, right? Because just like the world they lived in, the world that we live in today has a tremendously powerful ability to to shape and to mold and to persuade our desires away from God and toward the things of this world. And so James writes in verse four, he says, you adulterous people, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity, which is just like a fancy word for conflict with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And so here we are, week seven, in our journey through James. And, and James can go pretty hard in the paint sometimes, can he? 
I mean, he gets pretty rough. Throughout this letter so far, he has been calling his readers like brothers and sisters. And sometimes he calls them my dear brothers and sisters. And so clearly James has like this sensitive, gentle side to him. But when James really wants to open it up and be mean and be harsh, he really goes for it, doesn't he? Right here, he calls his readers these adulterous people. And so why such strong language? Well, well in, in James' perspective here, when we as followers of Jesus are driven by our own desires rather than our desire for, for, for God, we are like an unfaithful spouse. We, we stray away. And, and, and what is the result of this straying? Well, James says it does two things here. First of all, we become friends with the world, and second, it sets us up for conflict with God. And so, do you see the progression of James' thought here so far? When, when we let our own desires take the driver's seat in our lives, and, and, and when the center of our lives revolves around satisfying what we want, when we want it, and our own pleasures, and then inevitably things don't go our way, and trust me, inevitably things will not go your way. We grow frustrated, we grow angry, and this causes tension and conflict in our relationships around us, but we have to understand that that's not where it terminates, that's not where it ends. Eventually, that frustration and that anger and that conflict, it spills out and upward toward God, and and we cry out to God, and we say, God, I've been trying to follow you, I've been trying to obey you, I've been trying to do things right, and this is how you reward me? This is what I get? And, and our anger and our frustration moves from being directed horizontally toward those around us and then vertically up to God. And that's when we start to enter some really dangerous territory because that's when we start to align ourselves with, with people and, and ideas and, and groups, anything that supports our single-minded pursuit of getting what we want when we want it. And here's the crazy thing. The crazy thing is, th- is that I don't think we even realize it's happening. Like no one wakes up, I mean very few people, but I think no, almost no one wakes up in the morning and is like, today I'm gonna be an enemy of God. Almost no one wakes up slowly but surely over time that we begin to make these small decisions that lead us down this path. We begin to, we begin to neglect our time with God. And in the name of tiredness or busyness or just plain apathy, we, we set aside and we get rid of, of time spent with the Lord, cultivating our relationship with him through prayer and through worship and through time in his word. And what this does is that begins to erode our relationship with God. We begin to set aside and, and neglect what God prioritizes and instead we begin to prioritize what the world prioritizes. Wealth, career, status, comfort. And slowly but surely, we begin to invest more time into those things and then we begin to see that the relationships that we surround ourselves with, our actual real life friendships, have more to do with those pursuits of comfort and leisure and living our best life now rather than having relationships that are are deeply authentic, where we are held accountable where we are growing in generosity and honesty and and sacrifice. And so James' argument here is that when we decide to remove our friendship with God and we're like, God, no longer, I don't want you to shape me, mold me, or lead me, and we give that over to our own desires and and to, to friendship with the world and we say, you shape me 
You lead me. You mold me. We do this, ultimately, James is saying, because we treasure something here on earth more than what God has on offer. We want something here and now rather than what God has presented on offer to us. And James says that that, that we, in essence, then become enemies with God. It's something we're all guilty of. But what's even more stunning is God's response to that. Look at verse five. James writes, or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? But he gives more grace. A couple things on, on, on this verse right here. First of all, let's, let's look at the word jealousy of God. This idea of jealousy, we usually have a negative understanding of it. We think envy and we think frustration and we think anger and that's not what's going on here. Listen, God is not jealous of you. Your God is jealous for you. God is not jealous of you. He is jealous for you. Remember, James has just called his readers this, this adulterous people And our good, loving, compassionate God is watching as we run around and and try to pursue after the things of this world that we think are gonna satisfy us and our God is watching and he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? The the very thing that you're looking for is right here. That's not gonna satisfy you. Don't cozy up with that thing. I will satisfy you. I will bring you the joy you're longing for. God's jealousy isn't look at what they have. I wish I had thought of that. I wish I had that. God's jealousy is I made that. I made you. I created you. And I know what's gonna satisfy you. I know what's gonna bring you joy. And so God's jealousy over you right now is is, is a deep matter, a concern about your joy. God is deeply concerned about your joy and he knows that where you're gonna find that and it's not gonna be found in pursuing a better career or wealth or health or comfort. We will experience it in him and him alone. And so, so here we have our loving and gracious God. And in response to our friendship with the world, in response to our straying, you know, last week we sang one of my favorite songs, um, Come Thou Fount, where we sing prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. I can barely get those words out when I'm singing them without crying because I know my own heart. I know my own tendency to stray and to go after the things of this world, the things that I think will satisfy me. I think we all find ourselves in that spot and God knows that and in response to that, listen, he's, he's waiting for us and he's not waiting for us at the house because we showed up late and he's gonna berate us and belittle us. God's waiting at the house like the, like the parable of the prodigal son. He's waiting there with open arms. He's running to meet us and to welcome us and to wrap his arms around you and say, welcome home. His grace is greater. His grace is greater. But we see that he just doesn't kind of dispense this grace all around. He, he gives this grace to a specific kind of person. And I want to be that kind of person. And I believe that you want to be that kind of person too. But who is that kind of person? Well, it's the humble person. Look at verse six. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. 
God gives grace to the humble, not the proud. Not the ones that double down, pursuing what they want when they want it. The greater grace that God has on offer is available to the humble. Those who are willing to stop in the middle of their frivolous pursuits and just be like, what in the world am I doing? Why am I doing this? Why am I going after this thing? Why, why have I left everything behind that God had on offer? And listen, it might just be bickering and tension right now, but, but this could be divorce later. It might just be kind of a, a broken, frustrating relationship with my kid, but, but it might be no relationship later. It might just be tension in the workplace now, but, but this could be unemployment later. And so God, I, I come back to you. I humble myself before you. I throw myself at your feet, God. Would you restore me to a relationship with you, God? Would I experience that greater grace? And James says for the person who is eager to throw themselves at Jesus' feet and experience that restoration, he shows us how to do this in verses seven through 10. He writes this, submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. I think what's so amazing about this passage, I think what's so amazing about our God our good, gracious, loving God, is that in the face of our straying, he just turns the volume up on grace. He turns the volume up on grace, and in response to that grace, James says, now humble yourself. Humble yourself, submit yourself to God. Let go of what you were going after. Let it go, and go after God, and submit yourself to God, and then how do we do this? Well, James gives us, I think, three things here to do in response to the grace that God has on offer to us in the midst of our wandering, in the midst of our straying. And the first thing he calls us to do is to resist the devil. Resist the devil. I think if you read throughout the New Testament, there's this idea that, that um, you know, the devil made me do it. And that excuse, I, I think it just doesn't fly in what we see in the New Testament. But one thing we have to acknowledge is that there is a very real enemy out there. There's a very real enemy out there that is looking to seek and kill and destroy. And when you partner that very real enemy up with our own broken sin nature, and you put those two things together, and you put all of what the world has on offer in front of us, many of us know in this room right now that that can lead us to a very dark, twisted place, right? And so what God's word says here is he, he says, resist the devil, and, and we have, a, have our first promise here, and he will flee from you. You resist the devil, he will flee from you. We have the ability to resist the devil, to resist what we would pursue after, temptations. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says that there is always a way out. There's always a way of escape. And because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, we can resist those things. We don't have to sin anymore. Now listen, we are going to, we're gonna stumble, we're gonna fall, we're gonna fail, but there's always a way out. There's always a way out and there's always support coming. And so the first thing we do, if we wanna submit ourselves to God, resist the devil. Resist the devil and not just that, we also see this, we are called to draw near to God. Draw near to God. Another promise right there, come near to God 
and he will come near to you. He will. You might feel like he's a million miles away. You might feel like you can't hear his voice, but listen, God's word promises you that when you draw near to God, he will come near to you. And how do we do that? I think we do it, first of all, through time in his word, opening up our Bibles and reading them. And listen, we don't read them like it's just like a newspaper or we're trying to get facts and figures. We read them like someone who's in relationship with the writer. We read them to be reminded, we read God's word to be reminded of his goodness and his grace and his beauty. And and those things are to fill and fuel our faith so that in the face of temptation, in the face of wandering, we are reminded, no, 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 God's goodness, God's grace, what God has on offer for me is so much better. That's the treasure I want. And so we draw near to God through his word, but not just through his word, we draw near to God through one another. You see, God doesn't just call us to himself individually. He calls us together to one another as a community. And, and like, I, I mean, I know not everyone here is a people person and people can get annoying and they're difficult and they're hard. Listen, that's part of the process. As we spend time with one another and, and we are, our, our pride and our, our, our selfishness is drawn out in community, we draw near to God in that. St. Cyprian of Carthage, he's this old dead guy. Uh, he, he, you don't have to worry about him. He said this one time, he said this, that, that no man can have God as his father who does not have the church as his mother. We need one another. We need community and we need to draw near to God through one another. And so those are the two things, resist the devil, draw near to God. And one more thing, we need to be serious about sin. We need to be serious about sin. James tells us, he says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And what I love about this is it's not just about actions here, it's also about our desires. It's about what we want. It's not just about our hands, it's not just about a surface level righteousness, it's about getting all the way to the core of, of what we're going after and what we're pursuing and what we think is really gonna satisfy us. And so would we be honest about what we want? God can handle it, he already knows Would we be honest about what we want? And if it's not in line with what God wants and what God wants for us, would we put that to death? Would we put that to death and submit ourselves to God? And you see, we're able to submit ourselves to God because Jesus submitted himself first. Jesus submitted himself first and he became what John wrote about in in his gospel, that he, he was the lamb of God. He was the lamb of God that paid for our sins and made a way for us to God. Jesus is the lamb of God. And listen, he didn't just do this so that we would have like a ticket to heaven when we die, some kind of insurance policy at the end. He did it and later on in the gospel of John in John 10, 10, Jesus said this, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. What we have to understand is this abundant eternal life is to be enjoyed in the here and now. And that, listen though, that's only possible when Jesus becomes the center of your life. When he becomes the all-consuming, motivating purpose of your existence, when he becomes, in other words, your logos. Do you see the connection there now? That, That Jesus paid a way for us to be the center of our lives. And so James understands this, and Jesus understands this. It's why Jesus asks us as we follow him, 
what do you want? What do you really want? Because listen, you are what you want. And more than anything else in your life, more than what you think, more than what you know, more than what you do, more than what you believe, you are shaped by your desires. You are shaped by your desires. And so I'd ask you again, what do you want? Ask yourself that, what do I want? What have I been going after? For a lot of us right now, this moment here, this morning, might be a call to humble ourselves before God, to wash our hands and to ask God to cleanse our hearts because God's got something more for us. God's got something better for each and every one of you. His grace is greater and we can access that grace by humbling ourselves today. So I'm gonna invite the band up and we're gonna take communion today. And, and as the band's playing over you, as the band's singing this next song over you, this is the question I'd ask all of us to reflect on this morning. What do I want? What do I want? Just bring those desires before God and, and, and examine those desires and be like, God, why do I want this? And God, would you shape my desire and shape my heart so that I would want you? So that I would want more of you in my life, so that you would be the center, so that you would be the all-consuming, motivating purpose of my life, so that you would be my logos. Would we repent of going after those other frivolous pursuits and be like, God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust you on your promise. I'm gonna trust you that you really do satisfy more than any of those other things that I've been going after. And when you're ready in the middle of this next song, you can make your way off to the sides. We've got the, the cup and the bread available for all of us. And at the end of, the, at the end of this song, we're gonna, we're gonna take communion together. So let's take this time right now just kind of quietly to, to reflect and to ask God, what do I want? What have I been going after? Let's do that now. <laughs>